0: Well, it's always a special time to start a new book. We're in the other part of the Bible now, 1 Corinthians. We're going to time travel. Time traveling to 55 A.D. In 55 A.D., Paul is sitting with his brother Sothnes, his brother in the Lord. The Holy Spirit is impressed upon his heart, and he is beginning to write. Now, I'm going to tell you a couple secrets. In 55 A.D., Paul is not writing 1 Corinthians, he's technically writing 2 Corinthians. We don't have the original 1 Corinthians. We're going to see that in the scripture here in a little bit. Um, in a couple of chapters, Paul's going to refer to an, an earlier letter that we don't understand. And he's writing these things to a church that he had planted by God's grace a few years earlier. But let's, let's pull it back a little bit because before I pull all history nerd on you guys, let's talk about some application right off the bat. When you hear the word church, what do you think about? At different times in my life, I taught about different things. At early childhood, I would have thought about, you know, the big Catholic church and the mass that my atheist Catholic family never went to. <laughs> but whenever we were confronted, we say, oh, no, 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 we're Catholics. We go, Yeah, we go to that place once, you know, every five years. <laughs> At different points, I would think that church is where the lady with the pink hair must be, with the golden throne telling us that we need to pay them more money or else we're all going to (laughs) die. In other portions, I would have thought that church was uh, the small Calvary Chapel Lompoc that we had that that met in a uh, building similar to this one, really. And in other parts, I've thought different things. And then you have uh, different experiences. You may be different different things about what you think church is. Now, I want you to think, what does first century church look like? What is the original church like? What do you think? What kind of misconceptions do we have? Because as we go and we talk about Corinth and we talk about the first century and we talk about this time after Christ has already rose from the grave, he's ascended into heaven, and the Holy Spirit has fallen, we're going to be knee-deep in what the first century church actually is, what it's really about. And then we're going to compare, as we go through these chapters, the scriptural definition of church, and then we're going to bring our interpretation of what we think church is, and we're going to put them together. Now, I'm going to give you a hint. One of us is wrong. Either the Bible is wrong or we are wrong. You, you could pick. <laughs> you think it's the Bible, you're in the wrong place. Definitely, the Scripture is going to give us a correct understanding. I think we're in the right place if they think that they get straightened out. Let's get, well, let's all get straightened out together. Let's pray in verses, we're going to pray and then we're going to jump into verses 1 and 3. Lord, we do pray that you would continue to correct us and change us, that we would be used by you. And as we see these opening verses here in 1 Corinthians, Lord, that we would learn here in the 21st century what you were sharing with the 1st century and really to all time, Lord. And so we praise you and we thank you in advance for the work you're going to do this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Paul opens this letter. In verse 1, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sothnes, our brother, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to talk a lot about the city a little bit. I want to build a little bit of background because I think it helps place us there. I am going to pass on some of the um, the literature and how they wrote letters back then and, and the grammar and the blah, blah, blah. I don't, I'm not interested in any of that stuff. I'm interested in what God has for us and the history of it. But I've already told you my own quarks, so I highly recommend you continue to learn on your own. The, the first thing we need to know about ancient Corinth is that there's an old city and a new city. To us, it's all old. But in 146 B.C., the Roman general Lucius Mummius, never heard of him, he invaded Corinth and he destroyed the entire old city. The entire Grecian old city that's known from antiquity was completely flattened to the ground, as is the Roman custom. And from 146 to 44 B.C., for 100 years, nobody lived there. But Julius Caesar, may have heard of the guy, he sent people to rebuild the city of Corinth. And so when we're talking about the city of Corinth in 55 AD, it's only 100 years old. It's in a different location. It's brand new. It's kind of like the Hilton Head area. We're going to talk about that a lot. Because, yes, there's some old buildings in Hilton Head, but the majority of this town is less than 20 years old. The majority. Every, every time my friends come and visit me from California, are like, man, there's so many new buildings and they just keep popping up, a lot like Corinth was in that day. Now, you if uh, you've heard any stories on Corinth, have heard about the temple of Aphrodite and that there was a thousand temple prostitutes. Let's be crystal clear, that was in the old city. There is no historical evidence except for one guy referencing it, that it was in the new city at the time of Paul. Now, there is plenty of debauchery going around. I just want us to get the misconceptions out of the way because we're actually going to see a small portion of that in the old city, and we're going to see some of the ruins. I want us to see it, but I want us to understand a lot about this town. It's new, and it is massive. It is the third largest city in the first century Roman Empire. Four hundred to 700,000 people live there. Four hundred to 700,000 people live in this town that is less than 100 years old. The reason it is so popular, the reason it is so prosperous, is its location on the Saronic Gulf and the Gulf of Corinth. If you can see the superimposed, you can see its location in Greece. But it has this isthmus, this, this small layer of land there, that small uh, amount Sailors did not want to sail around the island because when they went to the Mediterranean, the sea was notoriously bad. So what they would do is on the eastern shore, they would get their boats, they'd roll it up on the beach, and then they would push the boats across that land to the Gulf of Corinth on the western side. There was two harbors. And you see Corinth is the biggest town in between the two. Later on, a few centuries later, they'll actually cut through the rock and they'll put a canal there, which you can actually go online and you can see that canal today. But at that time, they were pushing the boats. Now, they had the boats, they had all the trade going from Rome to the Eastern world. I mean, it was the interstate highway of the time. If you look up by uh, Hardyville and you go up there by um, Cusahatchee, and you see the 95, and you see that there's a bunch of gas stations, a bunch of places, but then there's a couple roads to the side. And you're like, what are these roads? That Before the interstate, that was the highway, and you see these old gas stations from the 1930s and 40s. At least if you're a guy like me, you notice things like that. And you wonder about the people who lived there, and what was it like, and how the economy changed when I-95 went through. That's Corinth. There's the old portion of the city. There's the old ruins a little bit farther. Then you have the the town that's close to where all the traders are going, all the sailors, the soldiers, the legions, everyone traveling back and forth from the eastern portion of the empire to the western portion of the empire. On top of that, they had biannual games. They had entertainment. They had tourism. There was money changing. And then they were also known for their oratory and their philosophy. It's been said by a lot of scholars that Corinth of that time was like the Las Vegas and New York of America put together put together. And to me, it kind of reminds me of like Hilton Head. You know, you got the beaches, you got the tourists, you got the economy, it's brand new, and there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes. And that's Corinth. But let's talk about us. Let's talk about this for a little bit, because when I was beginning to study this book and jumping into it, I started seeing pictures like this. This is the main road going into the old city of Corinth. I want to be crystal clear. There's the old city and the new city. The old city of Corinth here was destroyed by the Romans. This is the main road as you went into town. Now, I didn't have enough space, but over to the right, that temple of Aphrodite with its 30-foot-high pillars is still there to this day. You can go and you can walk there. And throughout this letter, I want us to see what lasts and what doesn't in our life. I want us to think because there's different areas of life and there's different areas about this area where we kind of get caught up in things. How many businesses were on that main street? How many houses? How many mansions? How many powerful people? How many Roman legionnaires? How many Greek hoplites? How many politicians? How many different things were going? It's nothing but old rocks now that get people like me all geeky about. Think about all the money that was going on. Paul lived there for 18 months. For 18 months, Paul was there teaching every single day. He had planted this church, and these Christians were starting to come. They were starting to gather together, and they were discipled by Paul. The majority of the Corinthian church was Gentiles. It had started with a handful of Jews, but the majority of them came from pagan backgrounds, and that paganism was all around them. When we had in our minds the first century church, what did you think of? I know for me, I have some real misconceptions. I originally thought the first century church, they had it all right. right? They had just seen Jesus, or they had talked to people that had just seen Jesus. The disciples were still around. The apostles were still around. How could things possibly go wrong in that time period? We have a saying around here, wherever there's people, there's people problems. And within the first century, within a decade or two, there are problems wherever they go. But it doesn't, doesn't that make sense, though? Even in the 12 apostles, there was problems. Even with Jesus around, there was problems. And then when you think of what a perfect church is, if it's a biblical church, if there's people there, there's going to be problems there. Who's ever heard, I don't want to go to church because there's a bunch of hypocrites there? A-duh. Uh, <laughs> there's people there, aren't there? <laughs> Now, Paul is writing because his heart is for these people he spent so much time with. But he's hearing reports of bad things that are happening. Things are kind of not falling apart because the Lord is faithful. And so he's writing with Sothenes, who was in Corinth. We're going to talk about him a little later. I've got to save something for later, a little dessert. But it says there in Acts 18, verses 1 through 4, After these things, Paul departed from Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a certain Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to depart from Rome, and he came to them. So because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for by occupation they were tent makers. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded both Jews and Greeks. He was working Every day, working with leather, working with tents, teaching. People were gathering together. And I can I can relate to what it is to go into a community that's not your own and to, to work hard and to teach the gospel and to share. And, and he had to leave. He had to continue to work and continue to share the gospel of Christ. That was his calling as an apostle. I'm not an apostle. I'm called to stay here. Lord knows I can only handle one place. And so Paul is hearing these things and he's writing back to that church. And what does he say there? Let's go back to our text, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. You see, this entire book is corrective. We're going to spend chapter after chapter after chapter talking about how messed up these people are and how messed up this church is. That's planted by Paul. Paul. That the Holy Spirit is working in. But in the first nine verses, we're going to focus on what really matters. They are all believers who are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Everything else doesn't matter. Remember those ruins that we looked at? Remember how I started putting on your brain, like, oh, think about the businesses and the military careers and the people? They're all dead. Everything they ever did is gone, it's all gone but every believer that called upon the name of the Lord Jesus is alive today. Every person that they invested into the scriptures and grew in the Lord and shared the gospel exists today in the right hand of the Father in the kingdom worshiping God. And all that other stuff 2,000 years ago is nothing but dust. If the Lord tarries another 2,000 years, All your careers, now I'm going to get a little bit, you know, negative here. All the things you're struggling about, all the things you're worried about, nobody cares. (laughs) The biggest house in Wexford is tomorrow's dust. It's nothing. Whatever political machinations and who's in charge of what and whatever disease is coming and whatever worldwide catastrophe and whatever the Illuminati does, if they even exist, (laughs) doesn't matter it doesn't matter what matters is our personal relationship with christ that we are sanctified in christ jesus verse 2 paul could close the book up be like i'm done the holy spirit needed to speak to all of us and continue but everything else is second to simply placing our faith in christ jesus now remember all these people are messed up right all of them are messed up but who does he say they are called to be saints now if you come from a catholic background like i do that's a big deal to be called a saint i mean you got to have committees and you got to have investigations and you got to hit check marks and you have the right people in the right places and have the right friends then you may be allowed to be called a saint but only after tens of thousands of people say that you're the worst person on the planet. That's how you get a saint. The Bible clearly tells us that all who believe on the Lord Jesus are sanctified, cleansed, set apart, called to be saints. Oh, not just in Corinthians, Romans chapter 1, to all who are in Rome, called to be saints. Colossians chapter 1 verse 2, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ who are in Colossae. How about the church in Ephesus? Ephesians chapter 1, Paul, an apostle of God to the saints. And I could go on to Philippians. I can go on and on and on, multiple portions of Scripture. If you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, confess with your mouth, believe in your heart, you are a saint. You don't act like one. You don't talk like one. You don't deserve to be called one. Correct. You are right. The Corinthians are messed up, but they are all saints. And this is the church of God. And they have the grace and peace. Verse 3, they have grace and peace from our God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Wow. And this is just the first three verses, y'all. We're just barely digging in here. Now let's read verses 4 through 6. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched In everything by him, in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. Here we see the heart of a pastor. God's called them to be saints. He sanctified them, and he has blessed them with spiritual gifts. A major portion of this book is going to be correcting those spiritual gifts. There are many believers today also called to be saints, that believe there can be no spiritual gifts because they are misused. I am saying from the scriptures in 1 Corinthians, they have always been misused. They have always been abused because it involves people as much as it does the Spirit of God. The the importance of it is how do we use these spiritual gifts that God has gifted us correctly. If they use the same interpretation for ending spiritual gifts, then no one can teach the Bible. How often is the Bible misinterpreted? How often is the Bible misapplied? How many cults are there that are quoting the Bible? Does that mean that the word of God is not correct because some people do it wrong? No. No. Now, let me put a little legalese at the end of this, a little subtitle with an asterisk. If you are a cessationist here, which means you do not believe in the gifts of the Spirit, you are a saint as well. You're just missing out. Hey, I have, I have dinner with people that don't like to eat dessert. What's wrong with you? You're missing out. But, hey, that doesn't mean you're not invited. Hey, you can hang out. You don't want to enjoy the dessert? Fine by me. You're the one missing out, not me. I'll have your portion. And if you've had dinner with me, you know I will. I'm still called. All these people are misusing the script. I shouldn't say all, oh, that's too much. But many people are misusing it. They have, they're heaping up for themselves teachers. They've got all these different things going on. But what does Paul say? I thank, verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you. I find it fascinating. There's a lot of problems in this church. You guys know that? A lot of problems. I'm looking at all of them right now. <laughs> a lot of problems. Today's problems are things I prayed for on my knees, begged God for in the past. Today's problems were blessings that I prayed for in the past. You notice that that's the same thing in your life as well? A lot of the things you're going through right now, listen, I know some of you personally, you begged for children. And now you got them. You you begged God for them. And now you got them. You're welcome. Some of you begged to retire. Here you are. You thought you were going to leave your problems in Ohio. They followed you. (laughs) You brought them with you. Yesterday's blessings we begged for become today's problems. Paul's not under any illusions. I thank my God for you. I thank God. How often does he thank him? Always. I am always thankful for you guys. Now let me send you how bad you guys are. (laughs) No. He says, I thank my God always for you. Why? Because they're God's. For the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus. What can I give to you guys as a pastor? Nothing. What do I give you? Nothing. I told some brothers the other day, I'm just a waiter here. The Lord is the cook. He's the one that provides the ingredients. It's his spirit that works in you. It's his word that moves in your life. He transforms you. I thank God for what he's doing in you. You are Christ Jesus. You are his people. Now, he says that they are enriched in all utterance and all knowledge. Peter says that also. He says we are given everything that pertains to a life of godliness, everything. We're missing nothing. As messed up as Corinth is, as messed up as our church is, and as messed up as we are, we are, in Christ Jesus, given everything in all utterance and all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you. See, Paul's going to, in a few verses, and next week we'll look at it, he's going to say, Hey, I've been hearing some things. In, chapter, in verse 11 of the same chapter, he's going to say, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, Paul doesn't miss word, that there are contentions among you. So let's get this straight. These people, these people that God has called saints, that are called by God, that are in this really difficult and yet blessed area, this new church plant, that is already having problems, there's contentions, there's warfare, there's uh, spiritual warfare, there's application, misapplication of the gifts of the Spirit, and on and on and on. And Paul's hearing all these things, and the first thing he wants to say is, I'm so happy for you guys. I love you guys. That's what he says. Wow. Now, when it talks about enriched in everything by all utterance and knowledge, he's speaking about spiritual gifts. In fact, in verse 7, It says, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to pause in verse 7 here because it is a doctrinal statement. Who are they waiting for? First century church, this is the opening of the letter, this is important. Waiting for who? Waiting for the day of of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're saying the revelation, eagerly waiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are waiting for Jesus' glorious return. We're not waiting for the Antichrist. We're not waiting for the tribulation to kick off so that three and a half laters we can be raptured. We're not waiting to see Ezekiel 38, and then we're going to know the seven years, and then we're not looking for the abomination of desolation. If you have no idea what I'm talking about, it's okay, because we're waiting for Jesus. You're not going to miss the bus. (laughs) You don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Christ is going to come, and he's going to take the church. Paul's telling them. I want you to know that they don't have spiritual gifts even figured out, but they got their end times figured out. It's almost like the second appearing of Christ is important here. They said, we're waiting for Christ Jesus. In Titus chapter 2, Paul's sharing with his pastor, his young protege. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age. Why? Verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We're waiting for him who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. That's Titus 2, if you uh, needed to write that down. Paul telling the Corinthians, hey, listen, listen. I'm so grateful for you guys. God has blessed you. You are saints. God has called you. He is faithful to complete the work that is in you. You've been gifted spiritual gifts. You have all knowledge. You have everything you need. And just to remind you guys, Jesus is coming back any moment. You might want to get this straightened out. You might want to be ready for him to come. This is 1,970 years ago. I think... He is closer to coming back. I was at, um, I think it was a men's conference, and they had a pastor's panel up there, and they said, how do we know that um, Christ is imminent? And one of the young pastors that was on the thing said, because it's one day closer than it was yesterday. Well, it's 1,970 years closer than when Paul said, hey, be careful, Jesus is coming back. His return is imminent, imminent, imminent. Now, if he tarries, that's up to him. But we need to be looking for him just as much as the Corinthians were. Now, let's spend some time in verses 8 and 9. We're going to camp for a little bit in these last few verses. Who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. It's unfortunate that we are taught that we need to figure everything out. We need to clean this up. We need to be better. And if you're somehow not better, you're not a good Christian. We are saved by grace. Remember that from Galatians. Remember that from Ruth. Ruth was a Moabitess. How did she deserve that? She didn't. Unmerited, unearned favor. Wherever there is a church, there is going to be problems. Problems. There exists no perfect church because there are no perfect people aside from Christ. We're all broken. We are all making mistakes every day. And just when we think we're getting it, we're not. But it says here that Christ is faithful to confirm, that Christ is faithful to complete the work, that God is faithful in verse 9. And he is faithful, and we have been called into fellowship. Now, this is when my imagination begins to go a little wonky, a.k.a. I'm going to make some stuff up. Okay, just want to be crystal clear. Let's make some stuff up together. I envision Paul writing this letter. I think that Sothnes is the one who's actually writing it and that Paul is just speaking as his heart. And I think he's thinking about those times that he's in Corinth. He's thinking about Main Street. He's thinking about how Corinth is, and he's thinking about the people there, and he's seeing their names as he's hearing these problems, and he's seeing their faces. And then I see him looking at Sothnes. Sothnes is a special guy. You know, in Acts chapter 18, we're told that Sothnes was the ruler of the synagogue, and he was not hip for Paul's arrival. He did not like Christianity. He didn't like his power, his prestige, his place in Jewish society being questioned, and he definitely didn't like That as Paul was preaching week after week after week in the synagogue, they were beginning to figure out hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. The Gentiles are called in? What? The Messiah has come? What? No, I don't, what? So what they decide to do is go to the Roman authorities, to a guy named Gallio. And in verse 12 of chapter 18, it says when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, Achaia is a whole region of. Greece at that time, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him to the judgment seat, saying, this fellow persuades men to worship God contrary to the law. Man, I wish people would say that about me. Persuades men to worship God. Hmm. Verse 14, and when Paul was open, about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or wicked crimes, O Jews, there would be reason why I should bear with you. But if it is a question of words and names and your own law, look to it to yourselves, for I do not want to be a judge of such matters. He kicked them out. They, they kicked them out. Paul didn't envision Paul's like. And then the guy just says, like, get out of my get out of my courtroom, get out. Now Romans are not nice. I don't envision them opening the door cordially for them. I'm sure a couple of Roman guards brought their shields out and are pushing them out. The Jews are not happy with this. So what do they do? And he drove them from the judgment seat. And in verse 17, then all the Greeks took Sothnes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him before the judgment seat. But Gallio took no notice of these things. He didn't care. So Sothnes, the ruler of the synagogue there, they try and stop Paul by going to civil court. They're kicked out and in a typical ancient world way. They're upset about this, so they beat Sothnes. What's inferred in the scripture here is he's almost beaten, he's beaten to a pulp. This isn't something you walk away later and you put an ice pack on your head. And when he's beaten down and he's in complete despair, the same guy that he was against somehow comes into contact with him and shares the gospel with him. And now, a couple years later, Sothnes is the one writing this letter and is with Paul accompanying him on his missionary journeys to go out. The Lord is working in us the same way. What we think is the little things, bringing your family to church, reading the Bible, praying, interceding for one another, hearing the word of God, we think these are flippant things. We've been taught in 21st century America that this is an entertainment for you. You put an hour aside on a Sunday morning, you get a little entertainment, then you go to get lunch, and then you go to the movies. I'm showing you ancient ruins of towns that were very populous, very powerful, very prosperous, and they all account for nothing. The Bible says our lives are like a vapor, here today and gone tomorrow. If you don't believe me, look at your stock portfolio. <laughs> Whew! It's gone. No, Lord willing, it'll come back. But everything that we put away for Christ... Everything that we do in Christ's name is eternal and can never be destroyed. Corinth is long since gone. Hilton Head, one day, could long be gone, or one hurricane away from a, wiping the whole place out. But every single one of us that shares the gospel is eternal. Yes, I'm being flippant with our entire livelihoods, and you know the, yeah, you don't hang around with me very often, do you guys? <laughs> But the preaching of the gospel, the word of God, is eternal in the heavens. Every song, every prayer, every thought that we have, God knows it. And every single one of those brothers and sisters, Sathnes himself, you will meet him. He is alive. He's not as popular as the other guys. The line might not be so long. Think about it for a moment. I think of uh, families, in fact, uh, again, this is me going off the rails, when we were worshiping, some of those are old songs. And I remember some of the old the families' worship leaders that used to lead us in worship to sing those songs. And I think of where some of them are. Some of them are, have been serving the Lord for decades. Some of my closest friends. But some of them are not. Some of them, the families fell apart. Some of them, hardship came their way. And it reminds me what really matters. Is it interesting that in Corinthians, the things that are eternal, is God working on their problems? We try to avoid problems, don't we? But we're going to spend an entire letter with people that are 2,000 years they've been in the grave. Well, at least their tents have, their bodies. But for 2,000 years, their souls have been before God, worshiping him in the heavens. And so I, I picture myself there in that room. It's kind of a gloomy room by candlelight, Paul looking at Sophonis. Not saying anything because he's a man's man in my vision. No, no feelings involved here. Softness is just writing it down. What's your problem? You are gonna keep going? Taking a break? This letter's gonna be wrapped up. I wonder if Paul's thinking about Acts chapter 18, verse 9 and 10, when he got that vision from God. In verse 9 it says, Now the Lord spoke to Paul in a night, in the night by a vision. Do not be afraid, but speak and do not keep silent, for I am with you. No one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. Speaking about Corinth, you think you're you're outnumbered here. Oh, do you think that we're just filled with all these religious buildings and that nobody follows Christ here? God has many people in this town. And you think, oh, you know, the government's going crazy and business is going crazy, our culture is going crazy. Yeah, 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 but who cares? God is with us. And he has many people in this city. And he, what he does is eternal. And the machinations of the enemy and those that are in opposition to Christ, or even those that are just busy about trying to hoard that money, it's all going to pass away one day, but only what's eternal. Let's look again at the ruins of Corinth. Here's that off to the right. You see that? It's kind of hard in the top right there on the top of that hill. Those pillars are 30 feet high. This is the old city. That's the temple of Aphrodite. That's it. All that money and all that worship and all that nonsense. That's it. That's the main street I talked about in the old town. Look at all the old cities, all the old markets, the old towns, all those things that were happening. This was the most important, richest place of that era, and it has come to nothing. We will, however, walk down a main street that's paved with gold in the New Jerusalem. And at the end will be the temple where God will rule and reign. Jesus himself will minister to us all. And we will be there. I will be there. You will be there. Our Corinthian brothers and sisters will be there. All the saints, everyone that's called upon the name of the Lord Jesus, they will all be there. He will not be missing a single one. Huh. As I was studying this, it helped me reprioritize once again, what's the big deal? What's happening? You know, right now... At the time of this recording in 2022, Ukraine is the biggest deal. That's what's taking our attention. They're talking about more diseases and more of this and more that, and people are worried about this. And we should be. We should be. But never, ever misprioritize our walk with Christ, your personal walk with him, your prayers, your readings, the gospel, the message. Saving souls is the only thing that's eternal. And God adds as many as shall be saved. What I'm trying to say in so many words is the things that we think matter don't. The things that we are impressed with physically don't matter. And the things that we take for granted, the things we think are not that big of a deal, are what really matter. Because there's a lot of ruins around this place, isn't there? I mean, I told you guys I was a history nerd. I warned you all. We have this battle Sherman's March to the Sea, where he came through here and wiped everything out. We have all these different ruins. And I go to those Sheldon Church ruins over there, and I see those tombstones of people from the 1700s, the 1800s. And I see that church building. That building's been burnt twice. Two wars, the Revolutionary War and the Civil War. And it's not, it hasn't been rebuilt. But I think, how many baptisms were there? How many marriages? How many lives were dedicated to God? How many people heard that sermon, that Anglican sermon? and got saved and trusted in the Lord Jesus that are eternal. Those graves are empty. Their bones are long since gone, but the souls are with Christ. Meanwhile, a hundred paces away, a mile away, people are spending their lives' fortune to build huge plantations, to build these huge businesses, thinking they're at the top of the world. It doesn't really matter. It's all passing away. I think of things like... Got this picture from a brother. This amphitheater. How many plays? How many ancient Greek orators? Some of these amphitheaters in the Corinthian area, even the um, ones from the Roman time, held eighteen thousand people. In a town of four hundred thousand, at least. How many tickets were sold? How many scalps? How many uh, scalping tickets? Not the other kind of tickets, you guys. You guys, you guys. How many actors, how many super famous actors? And I also wonder, in the Greek world, did they go to the famous actors and ask them how we were supposed to live their lives or were they smarter than we are today? (laughs) I pray they're smarter. I wonder if any sermons were taught there. I wonder if they had any evangelistic rallies or something like that. Guys, we're so impressed with these things. We're so impressed. Little do we know that God is working in the small problems in our church that God is working in the small problems inside of us and that they will have eternal dividends and that we are a lot closer to the first century church than you think in good ways and also in bad ways. But how great is our God that we are all called saints? How great that we all have been given all knowledge and all utterance that we know that he's coming back. He cannot fail. And he's faithful to complete the work that he has begun in us corporately and individually. And there's a lot more going on when you simply open your Bible and read it than you think. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for your word and this introduction into Corinth. I hope, I hope you help us to understand them more as we apply your scriptures. And as we begin to dissect these problems over the, the weeks and months, Lord, that you would work in us. Thank you for sanctifying us. Thank you for giving us grace and peace, for giving us all utterance and knowledge, Lord. Thank you for working us the way you did in the Corinthians. I thank you for showing us once again that in a world of paganism and influence and power and money, your gospel goes forth in power. That's where you thrive, Lord. And I pray that we would get rid of religious pretenses, misunderstandings, or what we think churches, or what we think things should be like and have a scriptural interpretation. Help us to be more like you, Lord. We praise you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you don't know Jesus Christ, as your personal Lord and Savior, come on up. We'd love to pray with you, share with you, give you a few things. If you have uh, some prayer requests, come on. We'd love to lay hands on you, pray with you. God bless you, and have a wonderful week.